story of psychology, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore, with your host, Professor Todd. Part One, The Ancients. Sometime around 30 AD, an itinerant Jewish teacher was executed by the Romans in Jerusalem for sedition against the Roman Empire, for claiming to be the king of the Jews. For the next 30 years, the followers of Jesus of Nazareth lived in and around Jerusalem, often sending missionaries to neighboring regions, but always maintaining their Jewish identity. Another apostle, however, Paul of Tarsus, preached that it was not necessary for Gentiles to become Jewish in order to join the brotherhood of Jesus' followers. Eventually, these two groups settled their differences and the new religion of Christianity expanded to nearly every corner of the Roman Empire. The new faith spread rapidly due to its appeal to the outcast classes like women, slaves, and peasants, who made up a large portion of the population. But Christianity later became appealing to the middle and upper classes, eventually including some Roman senatorial families. Often, early congregations met in house churches, presided over by either a male or female householder. As a result, women held an honored place in these early gatherings. The Apostle Paul closes many of his letters with great praise for female leaders, workers, organizers, and even a husband and wife team, Andronicus and Junia, who both are identified by Paul as apostles. Paul identifies a female apostle. Although customs varied from city to city, all Christian gatherings shared a single unifying ritual, a communal meal. What today might be called communion or the Lord's Supper was for early Christian gatherings a complete meal. Following the example and teachings of Jesus, early Christians shared their belongings so that even the poorest members of the gathering had food to eat. Belonging to Christianity meant that everyone would have enough to eat, perhaps enough to avoid starvation, so that becoming a Christian could mean literal salvation from death. The idea of God coming to us in the form of food may seem foreign to modern ears, but it was a central part of early Christian gatherings. By 110 AD, however, it was clear that earlier suggestions that the world might be soon to end were mistaken, and that the Christian gatherings needed an organizational structure that could last for the longer term. Ignatius of Antioch was an early church father who sought to organize the loose collection of house churches under one central authority. The structure of this organization mimicked the organization of a Roman city, 
with a bishop as an administrator who would preside over all of the congregations in a single city. With this administrative change, the role of women began to shift as well. Women were removed from their previous leadership roles. Letters written in the name of the Apostle Paul long after his death, called the pastoral epistles, began to circulate. These included 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. They carried messages that women should not be allowed to teach or have authority in the churches, that women should remain silent in the congregations, positions that were at odds with earlier authentic Pauline writing. Church structure became hierarchical, resembling a Roman city council, and gatherings of bishops began to meet regularly to discuss church business, including issues of proper Christian belief. And so, the Christian churches continued to grow. Christians attempted to spread the word about Jesus, while the Romans periodically attempted to persecute and kill them. The most severe of these persecutions began under the Emperor Diocletian in 303 AD. By 312 AD, however, a new emperor, Constantine, had united the split Roman Empire and completely changed the fortunes of the Christian Church. With one unified empire, Constantine wanted the one empire to be ruled by one emperor. But the unification of the empire would not be complete without a unifying dominant faith. And so, nearly 300 years after the death of Jesus, Christianity was poised to become the official faith of the Roman Empire. But first, the bishops had to determine, once and for all, what exactly the Christian faith believed. In order to understand how the boundaries of orthodoxy were established, it is necessary to rewind history a little bit. The Patrists, or Church Fathers, were the earliest Christian philosophers. In the eastern part of the Roman Empire, there was Origen of Alexandria, 185 to 254 AD. In the west, there was Tertullian of Carthage, 165 to 220. The Patrists' philosophies were for the most part the same. All truth comes from God, and truth is revealed to human beings through the mystical experience called grace. Other beliefs, however, differed, sometimes from each other, and certainly from modern orthodoxy. Origen, for instance, did not believe in hell. Like the Neoplatonists, Origen thought that all souls will eventually return to the One. In fact, it is believed that Origen and the great Neoplatonist Plotinus had the same teacher, a dock worker philosopher by the name of Ammonius Saccus. The Patrists needed to explain the special place that Jesus held in his relationship 
to God. Of course, Jesus looked like a typical human male, but clearly he was something more. Although the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke make no explicit claims to Jesus' deity, by the time of the writing of the Gospel of John, around 90 AD, stories were beginning to circulate that Jesus was, in fact, God. How a man could also be God was a question that had preoccupied the Patrists since Theophilus of Antioch introduced the concept of the Trinity in 180 AD. Tertullian felt that the Trinity referred to God, his word, Logos, and his wisdom, Sophia. Origen was more precise. Origen said that the Trinity refers to the One, the Father, the Logos, here meaning the Son, and the Psyche, the Holy Spirit. And this conception of the One, the Logos, and the Psyche was in keeping with the Neoplatonic ideal. But how exactly did Jesus fit into this Trinity? Was Jesus adopted into the Trinity as an exalted man? Or was his humanity merely a shell, hiding God himself within? Now, you may wonder why the early church fathers simply did not consult the Bible or Christian scripture to read all of the passages that discuss the Trinity. Two problems. One, the Bible did not exist yet. Now, certainly, the letters and the writings that would eventually become the Christian Bible were already in circulation, but so were many other ostensibly Christian writings, and there was no general agreement about which ones were trustworthy. And problem two, the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, neither the Jewish scriptures nor the early Christian writings nor is the concept of the Trinity ever explicitly explained. Rather, teachings about the Trinity have to be extrapolated from various passages, usually passages which discuss the Father and the Son, or Jesus and the Spirit, but not all three at once. The understanding of Trinity is further complicated because some verses that seem to discuss the Trinity turn out to have been added to the original writings. For instance, one verse in the King James Bible, 1 John 5, 7, seemingly describes the Trinity saying, quote, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Close quote. Higher criticism scholarship has revealed, however, that the last part of this verse was added many years later by other authors to support the doctrine of the Trinity. This interpolation, or later addition, is now no longer contained in most modern versions of the Bible, such as the New International Version. What remains clear is that there are certain advantages to having Jesus both human and God.
If Jesus is only human, then he does not possess the power of God to forgive sin. If Jesus is wholly divine, then he is not a human being, as the Apostle Paul in the Gospels clearly state. Nor could his example of living be emulated by other mere human beings. Having Jesus as both human and divine is the best of both worlds, and gives great latitude in interpreting his life and teachings. However, the idea of a single God existing in three persons is a sophisticated and complex concept that creates many conflicting opinions. For instance, some Christians questioned that if Jesus is God and Jesus died, that means that God suffered and died. A God who dies cannot be God. Others believed that the physical world was evil, while the spiritual world was good. So Jesus could not be God if he were clothed in evil human flesh. These variants of opinion and alternative interpretations of the Trinity eventually came to be labeled heresies, and their authors excommunicated and their books burned. The questions of Trinity that concerned the Patrists remained unresolved by the mid-fourth century. In 325 AD, one year after Constantine assumed command over the entire reunited empire, Constantine took the opportunity of a meeting of bishops in Nicaea, in modern-day Turkey, to finally put to rest the theology of the Trinity. He asked the bishops to write the definitive creed that would codify proper Orthodox Christian belief, an official statement of faith. At the time, a priest named Arius was teaching that because Jesus is called the Son of God, he cannot be equal to God, the Father. Rather, Jesus was created by God, a very special creation with a special mission for humanity. Jesus was more than man, but less than God. Arius was opposed by Athanasius, a North African bishop who insisted that God the Father is identical with God the Son, two beings who are one in substance. The arguments revolved around subtle differences that existed between two Greek words, homoousius, meaning the substance of God, and homoiousius, meaning like the substance of God. The difference between homoousius and homoiousiists was one Greek letter, iota, giving rise to a phrase that remains with us today. It does not make one iota of difference. Finally, the council voted. By a vote of 300 to 3, the bishops declared that Jesus is of the same substance as God. The concept of the Trinity prevailed. Their conclusion was codified in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, 
we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And we believe in the Holy Ghost. The Bible as Holy Scripture Now that the Church had established Orthodox Trinitarian belief, it was time to standardize the Bible. So how did we come to have a set of books that is now known as the Christian New Testament? This collection of books is known as the New Testament Canon. A biblical canon is a set of books that Christians regard as divinely inspired and thus constituting the Christian Bible. Although the early church used the Hebrew scriptures in their worship, being largely Jewish, the collection of books that became the New Testament was not delivered as a complete document. Rather, the New Testament evolved over time. The authentic writings of Paul had been circulating throughout the early churches, and were collected by the end of the first century. Justin Martyr, a church father in the early second century, mentions, quote, the memoirs of the apostles, end quote, which Christians called the Gospels. The canon of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was in place by 160 A.D., Although all of the books that would eventually make up the Christian New Testament had been written by the early 2nd century, many disputes arose over the canonicity of the books of Hebrews, James, 2nd Peter, 2nd and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, as well as the pastoral epistles alleged to have been written by the Apostle Paul. Some congregations, often depending upon their theology, preferred certain biblical writings over others. Prior to this time, churches and congregations in different regions accepted and used a variety of holy books, some of which would be familiar to readers of the modern Bible, but others which would not, such as the Revelation of Peter, the Letters of Clement, various Gnostic texts, and the book of advice and ethics called The Shepherd of Hermas. There was no single universally accepted Christian Bible. By accepting some books while rejecting others, regional canons were being developed. By the early 3rd century, Origen of Alexandria may have been using the same 27 books that would eventually comprise the modern New Testament. However, it was not until Constantine declared that he would finance the production of 50 new Bibles to be used in churches throughout the empire that it was finally time to decide what books would be in and what books would be out. In 367 A.D., Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria and the hero of Nicaea, listed all of the contents of the Christian Bible. This list, 
written in his Easter letter of 367, contained all of the 27 books in the modern New Testament, and only those 27 books. Even then, however, the books were not arranged in the order we find in the modern Bible. That order would not be established until the 16th century, with the work of Martin Luther. Thus, in 367 AD, was the canon of the Western Christian Bible closed. Early Christian Heresies A heresy is a belief that deviates from some standard official belief. When religious authorities decide that a belief is heretical, they usually take active efforts to eradicate that belief, usually including the removal of the offending believers, sometimes by excommunication or even worse. Of course, when we have competing religious beliefs, one man's orthodoxy is another man's heresy. Most Christian heresies centered around the twin issues of the nature of the Trinity and, more specifically, the nature of Jesus Christ. The officials stand on these issues, according to all of the Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant churches, is as follows. God is a Trinity. Three persons, but one essence. Jesus Christ was one person of the Trinity, simultaneously human and divine. Now, the fact that these two statements are not particularly rational was not considered relevant. Nor was the fact that the word Trinity appears nowhere in either the Hebrew or the Christian scriptures. Nor that the dual nature of Jesus as being both human and divine is never explained in scripture. In fact, the Apostle Paul describes Jesus as emptying himself of his divinity in order to be born as a human being in Philippians 2, 6, and 7. The Trinity and the nature of Jesus were seen as mysterious, matters of faith, not matters of reason. In fact, sincere belief, even despite contrary appearances, or belief in the absence of reason, was considered by some to be a virtue, even a form of the proof of the doctrine. The church father Tertullian of Carthage is credited with the motto, Credo quia absurdum, I believe because it is absurd. What follows are eight heresies, ranging from sects that see Jesus Christ as purely divine to others which see Jesus as purely human. Sabalianism. Sabalianism is named for its founder, Sabalius, somewhere in the second century. According to Sabalianism, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are merely three modes or roles or faces of a single person, God. Now this, of course, implies that Jesus Christ was purely divine without humanity, and therefore could not have suffered or died. Docetism Docetism 
coming from the Greek word meaning to seem, works along the same lines as Sabellianism. Docetism says that Jesus was not a real human being and that he did not have a real human body. He only seemed to be human. Monophysitism. Monophysite comes from the Greek words for one body. This heresy says that Jesus Christ was a joining of the eternal Logos with the human person, Jesus. This joining occurred at Jesus' birth, or incarnation. Jesus is therefore two separate natures joined in one body. Monophysitism is still very much alive in several present-day Egyptian and Middle Eastern sects of Christianity. Adoptionism. Adoptionism says that Jesus was a human being who was adopted by God at his conception, at which point Jesus developed a divine nature. Other versions of adoptionism suggest that perhaps Jesus was adopted later, such as when he was baptized by John the Baptist, and the Spirit of God descended like a dove, and the voice of God was heard to say, Behold my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was human and became divine at the moment that God adopted him. Nestorianism Supposedly, Nestorius, the patriarch of Antioch, somewhere around 410 BC, believed that Jesus Christ had two natures, man and God. And these two natures remained separate throughout Jesus' time on earth. Now, this is not really what Nestorius said, although he did deny the virgin birth. But still, the name Nestorianism stuck. And you can still find a few Nestorian churches in modern-day Iran. Apollinarianism Named for Apollinarius of Laodicea, circa 350 AD, this heresy says that Jesus Christ was not a real man, but not totally divine either. Apollinarians suggested that Jesus had a human body and a human soul, but that Jesus' mind was taken over by the eternal Logos. Arianism Arianism is named after Arius, circa 250 to 336 AD. Arius was a priest in Alexandria, and Arianism is considered the most serious heresy. Jesus Christ was thought of as a special creation. He had been created by God for man's salvation. These Arian beliefs were the ones that were refuted by the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed. Arianism was the form of Christianity that the Goths adhered to, the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths of Europe. Arianism was also popular in all of the areas that the Goths conquered, including Italy, Spain, and Africa. Another version of Arianism is called Socianism, from the Latin socius, meaning companion. Socianism holds that Jesus was simply an extraordinary man, this heresy lives on in two very different forms, the Unitarians and the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
other heresies. Now, not all heresies focused on the issue of the Trinity and Christ's nature. Here are some other examples. Donatism is named for its leader, the theologian Donatus the Great, circa 355. Donatism included a group of extreme sects, mostly in North Africa. They emphasized asceticism, they valued martyrdom, and they found lapses of faith, even those lapses that occurred under torture or threat of death, to be inexcusable. The Donatists believed that the sacraments required a pure priest in order to be effective. Pelagianism Another group of sects centered in Gaul, Britain, and Ireland is associated with the Irish monk Pelagius, circa 410. Pelagius believed that original sin was not transmitted from Adam and Eve to their children, and therefore would not be transferred to us. Because humanity was not tainted by original sin, baptism for the forgiveness of sin was not necessary. Rather, people would be saved through their own efforts, by living life righteously, by doing good to others. Doing right was possible for all human beings and did not necessarily require the grace of God. Many modern liberal Christians would agree with Pelagius. Gnosticism. We have already discussed Gnosticism in our conversation about Roman philosophy and religion. Gnosticism is the idea that salvation requires special knowledge. Now, obviously, the Christian versions of Gnosticism were considered very serious heresies. And that, despite the fact that most fundamentalist and evangelical Christians today hold that proper belief about Jesus and understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity are necessary for salvation and eternal life, even if those beliefs about Jesus and the Trinity require special knowledge that cannot be acquired simply from applying reason to the straightforward reading of Scripture. Gnosticism has never entirely disappeared. It can also be seen in the traditions of alchemy, astrology, and even in modern times in the work of the psychologist Carl Jung. Manichaeism. We also discussed Manichaeism in our conversation about Roman philosophy and religion. Manichaeism is actually a separate religion. It blends Christianity with Gnosticism, Mithraism, Neoplatonism, and even elements of Buddhism. Again, Manichaeism was considered a very serious heresy. It survived well into the Middle Ages, where it strongly influenced the Bogomils in the Balkans and the Cathars in southern France. The Bulgarian Heresy This heresy is worth a little larger discussion. In the 10th century, there arose in Bulgaria a Gnostic heresy credited to a priest by the name of Bogomil. The beliefs of the Bogomils were adoptionistic, meaning that they considered Jesus to have been adopted by God at the time of his baptism, but did not consider him to be part of a trinity. Neither did they consider Mary to be in any way the mother of God. 
The practices of the boga meals were characterized by simplicity and strict adherence. Priests were elected from their own groups and congregations, meeting at homes rather than in churches. Infant baptism was not practiced. Marriage was not considered a sacrament. And saints were considered false idols. This heresy had a strong Manichaean flavor to it. They believed that God had two sons, Michael and Satan. Satan created the material world and attempted to create Adam. But although he could create a human body, he was unable to create a soul. God added the soul to Adam, but mankind was bound in service to Satan. Michael came to earth in the form of the Holy Spirit, which then entered into Jesus. As Christ, Jesus broke the original agreement which bound mankind to Satan. But it was Satan who orchestrated the crucifixion, and Satan is still working to recapture mankind by means of the mainstream churches. The basic ideas of the Bulgarian heresy spread rapidly west through northern Italy to southern France. There, the believers called themselves the Cathars, from the Greek word meaning pure. Others called them the Albigensians, after the town of Albi, or the Bulgars for Bulgarians. This last name is the source of the word bugger, due to accusations of sodomy made against them. Even stricter in their practices than the Bogomils, the Cathars attempted to live simple, exemplary lives, with the most serious believers refraining from sex and other physical pleasures. Many adopted a strict veganism. They had only one sacrament, which was something of a last rites, in which sin was removed before the person died. The Cathars believed that the god of the Old Testament was actually Satan, and that Satan was responsible for the creation of the material world. Jesus was therefore purely spirit, as in docetism, since Jesus would have been tainted if he had had a real physical body. The Cathars believed that by purity of living, anyone could cast off the physical body and awaken in heaven. The impure, however, were doomed to rebirth into this physical world. One interesting side effect of this belief was that women were treated equally to men, since we have all been men or women at some time in our past lives. The Bogomils and the Cathars were harshly persecuted by the Orthodox Church in the East and by the Catholic Church in the West. By the 14th century, the Bulgarians were absorbed by the Islamic Ottoman Empire, and the Cathars were virtually eliminated by the Crusades and the Inquisition. They, however, had laid the foundation for another profound religious change that was occurring in Europe. And that was the Reformation. <laughs>